Welcome to Off the Chest. I am your host, Jordan Duran. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. We are now on episode five. Unbelievable that I've managed to keep this up for five whole weeks. In this week's episode, I want to get off my chest uh, things about money and education, that relationship, and how it's more than just the money in your pocket. It's all about your background in finance as well. But first, of course, the news. Now, I'm going to try a little bit different style this week. Instead of doing a good week, bad week, I'm just going to go through a couple of big news stories. Firstly, Trump. Now, Trump features a lot in the news. Mostly... It's all bad stuff. And this week is no different. Firstly, Trump and Attorney General Bill Barr suggested that their base vote twice. Once in person and once by mail in the state of North Carolina at a campaign event. Trump suggested this. Now, that's illegal. But the scary part... Well, it should be the scary part is that. But the fact that that just seems so normal is really evident of the times we live in. But the scary part is the attorney general didn't know that that was illegal. Didn't know the laws on it. That is one of the either most ignorant things I've ever heard or one of the most blatantly blatant lies I've ever heard like how can how can the attorney general like the most powerful law enforcement person in the United States doesn't know the law and voting you know everyone knows how sacred voting is like they're trying to incite voter fraud so that they can claim the election was rigged or or not valid and so they can try and keep Trump in office which is taking us farther down the road of autocracy than we ever would have thought the other big Trump news story of this last week was the bombshell reporting from the Atlantic about Trump's attitude and language towards troops and vets which Look, say what you want about military spending, about expensive and unjust wars, and the military-industrial complex. You have to respect the troops. You have to respect the vets. You have to respect the families. And he's calling these guys losers and suckers. He's calling. He's. He, I mean, we all know this from 2016 or 2015. Wow, it feels like an age ago, where he mocked the, the late John McCain for being a war hero, saying he only he like doesn't like troops and vets that were captured. I mean, we all know that this attitude exists with him. The fact that it's now a credible report and there's details on it is not surprising but just 
absolutely shocking. I mean, look, I I could talk for hours about why I think the military is bad, or our military structure is bad, I should say, and how we go about being this quote-unquote world police is bad and how everything is tied together. But we, instead of mocking the troops and vets, we should be taking care of them. It's pretty simple. Now, let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about COVID-19, specifically this new vaccine that has been deployed in Russia. Now, this vaccine has not been approved for mass testing and mass usage, nor has it even completed phase three trials. Now, just a little background. Phase three trials for a vaccine are like the last hurdle, basically, before it can get approved. And that requires testing tens of thousands of people with a placebo as well and comparing results and by using a large group, you get to catch things that you might not have caught in the first two phases, which are normally smaller groups, no placebos, and like only one or two groups of, or types of people, right? So you would pick like low-risk men of this age group, right? So that'd be phase one and two kind of, and phase three is people of all different age groups and all different uh, risk levels, it's hard to say that this test is going to be good or not, right? Because it hasn't been approved. And yet developers, vaccine developers are saying so far, it's not bad. It's actually pretty good. But it's too early to tell its actual legitimacy and its actual response to the coronavirus in our bodies. Now, why why is Putin doing this? Well, it's quite simple, really. Because he can. In the past, you know, the strength of, like, the EU and the WHO and the US would have probably... Probably not have let him do it, but because the US kind of just wants to suck off the Russian government... Well, let me rephrase that. Because Trump and his people want to. They, they don't have any backlash. So, for me, it reeks of autocratic desperation. But, it's hard to say right now whether it's a stroke of genius. Or if it'll be a total failure. We should note that. Worldwide, there are 24 different vaccines in phase one testing, 14 in phase two testing, nine in phase three. Three have been approved for early slash limited use, but none have been approved for full use. Now, the other thing I want to point out about phase three is that it takes months to get proper data. So don't expect anything before Christmas, I would say. I would say January, February 2021 at the earliest for a fully tested, fully confirmed vaccine. 
So, you know, am I scared that Trump's going to try and follow suit and get a untested vaccine pushed before the November elections? Absolutely. I think he totally will. Uh, Will I be taking it? No. Do I recommend taking it? No. Do I recommend maybe being a tester for it? Maybe. You know, maybe. It depends on what kind of situation you're in. But that wraps up the news. After this quick break, we will jump into our main topic. Okay, it's time to get this off my chest. The money and education dilemma, dichotomy problem in our country. So, to start with, education is way too expensive. And I'm not just talking about higher education. You know, we're talking about elementary, middle, high school, pre-K, childcare, which could be a different topic for another day. But the education system, because it's so heavily reliant on how much you can afford creates this classist system that favors the affluent student favors the affluent families and it also discourages underprivileged groups from continuing with education the best and the most prestigious schools in this country say that they prefer or that they're looking to recruit uh, minority students or underrepresented students but really they favor the affluent student or what I like to call like the family or legacy students because if you're really rich you don't need a scholarship you don't need to be taken care of because theoretically you have either you or your family have the resources to send you off to a four-year institution whereas an underprivileged group will need significant financial aid whether it's from the school or from third-party scholarships or donor groups whatever now specifically talking about higher education right the traditional system and society in general really downplays the significance of things like community college and your associate's degree. It downplays the significance of a gap year or gap years and also trade school. Right? If every single person went to a four-year university and studied, oh, I don't know, maybe like engineering or business or the arts, you know, that's great. But then what happens to skilled mechanics and plumbers and farmers? All of these jobs that are essential to living in an industrialized modern society don't get focus on. So there still might be people doing those jobs, but the skill gap continues to grow. Higher ed also comes with crippling student loan debt. And 
there's always an argument that says, well, if you can't afford to go to school, then you shouldn't take out loans that you can't pay back, right? Well, and that's just another blooming flower of the classes system of higher education, right? Education is supposed to be the great equalizer, regardless of race, gender, religion, background, you know, regardless of any of those. Like, every kid is supposed to have equal access to education. Now, there's a difference between having equal access to education and having equal access to a good education. Because when we talk about things equal versus equal access, that is two very different arguments, right? For example, when there, when there is a super, super nice mansion for sale in, let's say, um, Beverly Hills, right? Every person has an equal opportunity to buy it. Because it's on, if it's on, like, Zillow or on, the, on some sort of housing market, you know, everyone can see that they can buy it. But, obviously, not everyone can afford tens of millions of dollars for a house, right? And so, there's a similar argument to be made for education where every student, every kid, let's say, has equal access to go to school from kindergarten to the end of high school. But there's a lack of quality that emerges more and more each year between public schools and private schools primarily. One of the reasons, obviously, is funding, right? Teachers are among the most important members of society. And yet there are teachers who simply cannot afford to live on just their teacher salary. There are also teachers who are forced to buy their own school supplies because the school just doesn't have the resources to make sure every classroom has pencils or whiteboard markers or erasers. Now that's more of a problem with public schools. I mean, private schools are different because they are funded by or more by individuals and groups rather than the government. Now I've gone, in my life, I've gone to charter schools, I've gone to public schools, and I've gone to private schools, and there is such a huge difference between all of them. You know, my, I, for college, my private university had so many programs, so many extracurriculars, great facilities, all of that stuff. My public high school didn't. Now, don't, I, I don't get me wrong. I loved, well, I enjoyed high school. Let's not say I loved high school because that would be a very, very strong mischaracterization. But high school was fun. But it was, there was a lack of 
just resource in general. For example, textbooks that were old and falling apart. Things in classrooms didn't always work. A vast majority of them didn't have AC, which living in Southern California kind of is a necessity, especially in the beginning and the ends of the school years when it gets to the 90s and you only have like a fan in one classroom for 30 plus students and a teacher. So the government really should be realizing that the inadequate support for public schools is leading to another clear example of classism, right? And I've already touched on this, but I'm just going to keep repeating it because it's just such an important point. Those who have the ability to get a higher education or to go to a nicer school can do that. Like, it's their choice. But it shouldn't be a choice between private having great facilities and public not. It should not it should not be about that. You know, private education, private schools can teach religion, for example, or they can teach they can specialize in the arts. They can specialize in so many different things, right? Whereas public school is supposed to be like sort of representation representation of the government, so you're not supposed to say, Oh, this public school is a Christian school and stuff like that. You're supposed to kind of show and teach all perspectives and be open to everything. Whereas a pub- private school is more, you know, obviously private, so they can they have more say over what can be taught and done at their schools. Now, when we talk about higher education specifically, I want to focus on tuition raises for universities. Now, normally, you expect a little bit of a tuition raise, right? Everything keeps getting a bit more expensive. More and more students might be coming to your school, so you need to pay for more professors or more housing options or more programs. And that's okay. But, especially with this pandemic and the transition to online teaching for most schools that are being smart and not bringing back students so they can party and transmit the disease. You know, you, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say. There's arguments for both sides, right? The schools and the universities are obviously going to make less money because students aren't paying for housing. They aren't paying for activities done on campus. They aren't paying for a variety of things and so maybe you're like okay we can make it the difference by increasing the tuition the cost for classes specifically because otherwise maybe the school can't afford to keep all of its staff on full salary which has been the case for many schools they've had to furlough or lay off staff but at the same time why is there a tuition raise? You're getting a lesser quality education. Because there's you can't completely mimic the 
on-campus, in-person, in-class learning experience with a Zoom class. It's just not the same. There are some subjects that transition easily, and there are some that really don't. You know, it's very hard to do an entomology lab if you don't have access to a lab. Whereas it's easy to listen to a lecture if you just sit there and listen. But so regardless of what is the right answer, like, the key thing in all of this is transparency because people should know if they're paying 50, 60,000 a year to get an education, they should know maybe not specific numbers, but maybe percentage-wise where their money goes, you know? And where does the money go if teachers and professors aren't getting paid what many people believe their value is or what their worth is to society? Is it being used effectively, especially now, is the tuition money being used to maybe buy protective gear for when in-person classes resume or is it just going into the pockets of the admins right and so this is this is a tricky spot because i don't think an admin deserves much more than a teacher right i don't think admins do as much work deans presidents vice presidents right they just sit in meetings and in their office and they, they, you know, they act like they're important. But really, I mean, who's doing all the work? It's the professors. It's the health counselors. It's the admissions counselors. The financial aid officers. You know, all those people are doing the hard work. The technicians, the custodians, the groundskeepers, they're all doing the hard work. So why aren't they getting paid? Why are they being laid off? Why aren't the administrators taking a proactive stance and saying, you know what, we are going to take a bigger pay cut because we don't need 400000 a year. Maybe we need to reevaluate our priorities. Or maybe they need to reprioritize their spending on other things besides salaries. Do you need to pay as much for, I don't know, electricity since no one's using the on-campus facilities? Do you need to really cut the grass every single day or, you know, stuff like that? So really, how can we as regular people, maybe who are students or who are graduates, what can we do? Well, for starters, you can go out and vote for people that believe in education reform who believe in advancing the common good of improving public schools that's always a good one because public schools is quite often a breeding ground a microcosm of the united states it's a melting pot of different cultures beliefs and backgrounds and i'm not saying that private schools aren't but 
private schools tend to recruit people with certain backgrounds. For example, if you're a Catholic school, you'd like to have more Catholic students. If you're theater school, you want you don't want to have business students at a theater school. You want to have theater kids at a theater school, right? Whereas a public school doesn't really care. You're the best, you're the worst, you're better at one or the other, it's fine. Public school is where you come together and you just get exposed to so many different views. Another thing we can do is contact, you know, admins for pressuring them into making decisions that are better for the students and the parents than for the people in charge. I don't know. It's There's only so much we can do. So we got to do as much as we can the best of our abilities so that we like the government, like government, like civil protest, you know, so we can get the best deal. So anyway, that's off my chest. And uh I think I, I think I feel better about it. Just getting getting things off the chest is quite relieving. Let's move on to the final segment, which is normally a would you rather game, but for this week, since we are at the last week before the English Premier League starts, I thought I would make my table predictions for what I think the end of the season will look like. So there are 20 teams, and this is hopefully a little unbiased, but we'll we'll, we'll see where I go. So I think we'll start with the top. So my predicted champions, as much as I hate to say it, both these teams are rivals to my beloved Everton, Man City and Liverpool, will be top two for sure. Um, I do think the signings that City have made just make them better. I think it gives them a different element, gives them more options, and they would have definitely won if they ha- if they would have brought in Messi. But since it's not happening, I still think it'll be City, but a lot closer. Which means Liverpool, I think, will get second. I think they might become a tad bit complacent. They haven't really added to their squad in terms of first-team quality. Sure, they've added a couple bench options, I believe. But overall, they're largely the same team, which means if the same problems occur, then they'll be a little bit on a downswing from this last season. In third place, I do believe I'm going to pick Chelsea. They have made some enormous enormous signings. Thiago Silva, Kai Havertz, Timo Werner, Hakim Ziyech. Huge, huge upgrades. Oh, and Ben Chilwell as well. So they have massively reinforced themselves. They could, I think they could push for a top two, however, unless they sort out their goalkeeper position. I, I think they'll be stuck in third with that inconsistency. And fourth place for that final Champions League spot. I'm picking Manchester United. I think they finished the season really well after the lockdown. 
I think Bruno Fernandez was the signing of the season last year for the whole league. They look to build with their youth movement. And if they can sign a Jaden Sancho, I think they're really going to push a very close third if they can keep consistent. But overall, I think fourth place is just about right for them. Fifth place, another one of the traditional big six. I'm going with Arsenal. After a disappointing season last year, they turned it around towards the end, won the FA Cup, and won the Community Shield at the start of this season against Liverpool. Mikel Arteta looks to have learned a lot from Guardiola from Man City. And I think if they can remove some of their fringe players and bring in one or two more players, I think they're going to look a very, very solid fifth. Sixth place, I really, really, truly believe that my boys in blue, the Everton, are going to push seventh and sixth and fifth. I think we've just announced the signing of Colombian superstar James Rodriguez. We have already announced the signing of powerhouse midfielder Allen from Napoli. And we are very close to signing and announcing Ducure from Watford. I think if we can add another goalkeeper and probably a right winger, I think we'll be reaching a lot higher than most people think. I don't think many people see us moving above 8th just because of the quality of the other teams, but the reason I put them 6th and not 8th is because the next two teams in my table I don't think have added enough, and they've actually probably stagnated or regressed a little bit. But 7th place, I think it'll be Leicester City. We lost Ben Chilwell to Chelsea, of course. But they're a fun team, and when they're healthy, they are very, very enjoyable to watch. They are one of those teams that everyone kind of likes. But they haven't added enough, in my opinion. So they're going to be 7th. 8th, I do quite believe that it's going to be tough. And I actually think, looking at the options left to me, I was going to pick Spurs. But I think I think Wolves will push 8th. They might push 7th as well. I think those between them and Leicester is kind of tight. They're a huge... Another one of those teams that everyone loves. They play a vastly different style and formation. And I think they'll probably slip up a little bit. Just because the rest of the big teams have added so much more quality this transfer season. Ninth place, it's it's Tottenham Hotspurs. The meme team, the team that everyone loves to not like, they just, it's it's a Jose Mourinho team. They're just not going to do very well. At the beginning, they're going to play very defensive. They're not going to be pretty team to watch. And as a result, I think the players are going to get upset. They're going to get him sacked. And then, then we'll see what happens. Now, moving on to 10th position I'm looking at Sheffield United for this one I think they lost Dean Henderson his loan expired but they're flanking 
center backs tactic did wonders last season. I don't think they'll be as good as this last season. But they're still they're still a decent team and they're very well drilled. So I think middle middle of the table is perfect for them. Eleventh position. Well, this is an awkward table because this doesn't have the new teams. But we can uh, we can fix that real quick. But I do believe so. The promoted teams are Leeds, West Brom, and Fulham. Well, none of those teams are going that high. Um, but the relegated teams, I gotta make sure. I gotta make sure I don't add those to my table. There we go. Okay. So the relegated teams. Front were I know Bournemouth for sure. Were relegated. Norwich was relegated. Uh, and Watford was relegated, right. So, but that's fine. None of those teams would make it to this bracket. But I think 11th position is going to be a bit of an odd pick. But I think it'll be Brighton, Hove, and Albion. They're just another solid club. You know, nothing spectacular. 12th, again, one of those teams. I'm going to be putting... Burnley, and then straight after them, Newcastle. I think those those three teams kind of all are just very solidly unspectacular teams, interchangeable, nothing special. Now, 14th, I think Leeds United are going to pop in there. Leeds look the best out of the three promoted teams, in my opinion. I think I think they'll do reasonably well. And uh they'll be ready for challenging for mid table next the se- or the season after, I should say. I think fifteenth, I think Jack Grealish will carry Aston Villa to another Premier League survival. And then after that, if they don't pick up players, he might leave. I think sixteenth will be Southampton. They're not. They're a little. They're slipping a little bit. Relegation fight towards the end. I think. I think seventeenth is going to be. Ooh, I think, just surviving relegation is going to be. Fulham. I think Fulham have just enough to keep themselves up for another season. They've got Scott Parker signed a new contract recently as their manager. I think they've got just enough. And my three relegated teams will be Crystal Palace, West Ham, and West Bromwich Albion. I've decided to put West Ham bottom because I despise them, and they suck. In my opinion, they don't have a very good club. They don't have a good transfer policy. They don't really support the managers with all the need. I think West Brom will be the one team that's promoted from this season to be relegated back down. And I think Crystal Palace should have been relegated years ago. And it's just not... 
they don't play very proactively. So that's my table. I'll read through it again from top to bottom. Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Manchester United, Arsenal, Everton, Leicester City, Wolverhampton, Tottenham Hotspur, Sheffield United, Brighton, Hove, and Albion, Burnley FC, Newcastle, Leeds United, Aston Villa, Southampton, Fulham, Crystal Palace, West Bromwich Albion, and West Ham. So there we go. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Off the Chess. I hope you guys enjoyed. I appreciate all of you. Stay safe, and I'll see you next week. Bye.